Well, good morning. My name is Ruthie Siders. I'm the pastor for Next Gen Ministry here at Grace Chapel, and I just want to offer my word of greeting to those of you here in the main sanctuary in Lexington, but also to all of our campuses, our courtyard, and a special wave to the kiddos and their families who are downstairs in Kidstown doing this summer simplified experiment of worshiping with their families in a family-friendly environment downstairs. Also, if you're watching online, we're glad that you chose to join us. I'm continuing, this is the second week of our sermon series, Icons, When Culture Whispers God's Story. Last week, Pastor Tim helped draw some parallels and also help us see kind of what's missing in Star Wars and the thought of Jesus as our superhero as such compared to culture's superheroes. This week, I get Disney. Now, I love going to the movies, and it is not uncommon for me to suddenly scramble in my pocketbook for a paper and a pencil um, so that I can write down some line that I just heard. In fact, this past week, my daughter reminded me that when we first went to see Beauty and the Beast, there's this great moment as Belle is in the castle and um, is being greeted by these talking um, pieces of furniture, one of which is Lumiere, the candlestick, who is, for those of us in my generation and older, um, a Maurice Chevalier type character. And he says to Belle, life is so unnerving for the servant who's not serving. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. And I apparently slugged both children and said, oh, that'll preach. <laughs> and I had to write it down. Culture was whispering God's story. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when Pastor Tim came into my study and asked if I would participate in the Icon series this summer and that the teaching team felt that it'd be appropriate for me to tackle Disney and Pixar, I was both thrilled because I love Disney and Pixar, I love the movies, but a little concerned, how on earth am I going to narrow all these themes into one message? Tim was quick to suggest that I go with his favorite, Inside Out, which, yeah, it was okay, it wasn't my favorite. Sorry for those of you who absolutely loved it, maybe I just need to see it again. Then Pastor Robert was hoping for his daughter Elsie's sake that I would tackle Frozen, to which I looked at Robert and just said, let it go, let it go. <laughs> but seriously, last week, I was literally pleading with God for some sense of focus for the sermon when I had this thought, a whisper, perhaps. Disney is a storyteller. Jesus was a storyteller. Go to one of Jesus' stories and then work from there. And I immediately thought of Luke 15 and the stories that Jesus tells about the lost sheep, coin, and son. And thinking about that theme of lost and found and a yearning for restoration, I was quickly able to find lots of links to Disney and Pixar. We, start, we can start with the classical Disney films. Bambi is a newborn fawn and its mother dies. Bambi and his friends mature, grow up together. Restoration is seen at the end of the movie when Bambi has a family of his own. Snow White, 
Snow White's mother died soon after her birth. The father remarried a woman who gets extremely jealous over Snow White's beauty as she grows and so tries to get rid of her. Restoration is seen at the end when the prince rescues her and marries her. We have Cinderella. Her mother has died. Her father remarries. The father dies. Yes, there's a theme of loss and death in Disney. Have you noticed it over the years? Restoration is seen, however, when the prince arrives and she's able to put on that infamous glass slipper and then he takes her for his bride. Now, there are some of the newer films, shows my age because they've been around for a while already, but the ones that resemble Broadway musicals. I already mentioned Beauty and the Beast, but there's Pocahontas, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and of course, Frozen, just to name a few. But my favorite of these is The Lion King. In The Lion King, Simba it starts out as a young lion cub born to the king of the pride, King Mufasa. His father is killed in a chain of circumstances that Simba believes to be totally his fault. And so he runs away from home. Years later, his childhood friend Nala comes and finds him and tries to convince him to come back to the pride, to restore the kingdom and to take what is rightfully his as the throne and to be the king. But Simba is just too consumed with his mistakes of his past. He feels he cannot face his family until he has a vision of his father. And his father speaks words of direction into his life in a way that only James Earl Jones can say. <laughs> Talk about culture whispering God's word. And yet, what's missing? In the true story, Jesus never forgets who he is. He remembers. Simba does take his rightful place as king. Order is restored to the pride. But another thing that's missing is our heavenly father will never leave us. We do not need to beg for him not to leave us. Now, in more recent years, Disney has become the distributor for a newer animation company called Pixar. One of their first movies was Toy Story. Toy Story, in which Woody the cowboy fears the loss of being Andy's favorite toy when Buzz Lightyear comes on the scene. And then Buzz's loss is in finding out that he's not a real space ranger. <laughs> However, restoration comes when Woody helps Buzz realize the joy of being loved and belonging to Andy. Wally is a little robot who is tasked with the the thing to clean up um, the post-apocalyptic Earth. And he falls in love with this Eve, who is a space probe, that comes down to see if there's any natural life still existing on Earth. So Wally dedicates himself to help her in her mission and falls in love with her. And he helps her not so she'll love him back. He just helps her because he loves her. In a book entitled, The Gospel According to Pixar, yes, it's a real book, as is The Gospel According to Disney, I read these words. There's no hint of manipulation, no hint of, if I show her love this way, then she will love me back. Wally's love for Eve, or Eva, as he says, Wally's love for Eve transforms her, and his love and her love then begin to transform those around her. Culture is whispering, 
God's story, a love that is unearned, that transforms. It's a whisper of grace. Now these themes of loss and yearning for restoration are found throughout the scripture from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation. And they are themes that Jesus articulates in these parables of Luke 15. So as we turn to the scripture, I want you to notice how Luke sets up these three stories. I'm using the text from the message version of the Bible. Listen to God's word. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled, he takes sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Their grumbling triggered this story. Now Luke begins the chapter by showing us that Jesus' telling of these stories is in response to something that's missing in the theology of the religious leaders and Pharisees. Dr. Ken Bailey, who is a scholar and was a professor um, in the Middle East for decades, writes that these three stories are being told as a defense of Jesus welcoming and eating with sinners. While the stories describe a lost sheep, coin, and son, Jesus is really addressing the spiritual lostness of the religious types, the Pharisees. There's something missing in their theology. And that is what, as Peterson translates, triggered this story. Suppose one of you had 100 sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? When found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders, rejoicing. And when you got home, call in your friends and neighbors, saying, celebrate with me. I found my lost sheep. Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in need of no rescue. In Dr. Bailey's book, Poet and Peasant, we get an insider's view of the deeper meaning and nuances of Jesus' parables as seen within the Middle Eastern culture. The lost sheep illustrates the very act of a shepherd. Searching after the sheep is completely an act of grace. Like Wally, he's not in search of a sheep because the sheep pledged its love and loyalty to the flock. The shepherd, rather, searches after the sheep merely because... It is a lost sheep. There is nothing the sheep has done to earn this kind of love and care from the shepherd. It is pure grace. I've often wondered when reading this story, what happened to the 99? I mean, were they just left to wander the countryside? <laughs> well, Dr. Bailey helped me realize that if you had 100 sheep, you probably had more than one shepherd. So the other shepherds take them home because what we read in the scripture is that when the shepherd finds the sheep, he joyfully bears the burden of restoring the sheep to community, literally carrying the sheep across his shoulders, rejoicing. Now, it should not be missed here that there's a hint. There's a foreshadowing of Jesus, the good shepherd, carrying the cross so that community can be restored. He too carried that burden with joy. How do we know that? The writer of Hebrews tells us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's missing in the theology of the Pharisees? What's missing is unmerited grace. The religious leaders of the day held firmly that to the idea that repentance was a prerequisite for any grace to be shown. But the sheep doesn't seek forgiveness. It doesn't come back with its tail between its legs. Rather, the shepherd simply goes out in search of the sheep because it is lost. It's an act of unearned, unmerited grace. Now let's continue with verses 8 through 10 in our next story. Or imagine a woman who has 10 coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house, looking in every nook and cranny till she finds it? And when she finds it, you can be sure she'll call her friends and neighbors. Celebrate with me. I found my lost coin. Count on it. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. Now here we have a woman who has lost a coin. And we might think, what's the big deal? One thought scholars suggest is that it may have been part of a necklace of coins that she wore that was part of her dowry. Most women in the ancient world did not so adorn themselves when they went out in public. So if the coin is lost, it must certainly be in the house unless someone came into the house and took it. And if that were true, that might put her fidelity to her husband in jeopardy and her reputation as, as well. So she turns her house upside down in search of this item that is priceless to her. Priceless, worth far more than just a coin. This is a picture of how much God loves us, that we are worth so much more than we may ever realize. We are worth to him more than we think we're worth. That's how much value we are in God's eyes. He loves us. He loves you and he loves me with an unconditional love. Thanks be to God. So since the coin has such value to the woman, then the joy of it being found is so intensified. And Jesus' listeners would understand these nuances of the story so they would agree that there's cause for great rejoicing. And again, Jesus refers to the joy in heaven when one soul is lost and then returns to God. And Peterson says, the angels throw a party. Now it's significant that these first two stories have at their main center a woman and a shepherd. Jesus is challenging the assumptions and the attitudes of the Pharisees just in the main characters of his stories. Shepherds were not on the highest rung of the social ladder. We remind ourselves of that every year at Advent and Christmas. Likewise, women were notably second-class citizens in the ancient world. And Jesus wants his audience then, and he wants us now to rethink our attitudes, or as I learned recently, to shift our posture towards groups of people in our society who are marginalized. And using the shepherd and the woman in his stories, Jesus is revealing a second time something that's missing in the theology of those religious leaders. What's missing is unconditional love. God values every person more than we may ever realize. 
He loves unconditionally, rejoicing when those who are lost return. And to further drive this point home, Jesus tells the third and most well-known of these three stories. Most frequently called the parable of the prodigal son, it has been the focus of great works of art, like Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal, which was used by author Henry Nouwen in his wonderful little book with the same name, Return of the Prodigal, A Story of a Homecoming. Ken Bailey calls this parable the parable of the father and the two lost sons. For Bailey makes the point that the parable is not so much about this spendthrift prodigal that goes off and wastes all the money, but it's more about the relationship between God and a sinner and a self-righteous person. Tim Keller, an author and a pastor in New York City, asserts as well that this parable is more rightly called the parable of the lost sons in his book, The Prodigal God. Keller helps us understand in his book that there is a deeper, richer meaning behind the word prodigal in that it actually might refer to God and his seemingly reckless and lavish love for us. It's an interesting twist to think of it that way. Returning to Luke 15, we read the story. Then Jesus said, there was once a man who had two sons, and the younger said to his father, Father, I want what's coming to me right now. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he'd gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all throughout that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. With his heart pounding, he ran out and embraced him and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to his servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, the older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast of barbecued beef because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, Look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who's thrown away your money on wild living shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. 
You're with me all the time and everything that's mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. The father's relationship with the younger son illustrates a love that was so radical it had never before been seen or demonstrated. It is a love that grants the freedom not to be loved in return. Imagine that, parents. Allowing your children to not love you. The request of the younger son for his inheritance is a cultural slap in the face of the father. In essence, he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Not unlike Simba, the cute little lion cub, when he's singing, I can't wait to be king. Implicitly, he's saying he wishes his own father were dead because you don't get to become king till the other king is gone. Similarly, you don't get an inheritance until the person from whom the inheritance is coming actually dies and leaves it behind. To be so publicly humiliated and then grant this unheard of request is unexpected and absurd to the listeners of Jesus' story. But to add insult to injury, after wildly spending the money, the younger son comes home, hoping, hoping just to become a hired servant, and is then greeted by his father in front of the whole village because his father, seeing him from a long way off, picks up his robes and starts running through the streets and throws his arm around his son and kisses him. The shepherd left the 99 and went after the one. The woman stopped everything and turned her house upside down. He who was lost was found. Relationship was restored and an undeserved feast is prepared. Likewise, the father goes out to greet the older son when he refuses to come to the celebration. Bailey asserts that this older son is also lost and calls him a hypocritical saint. Those of us who have grown up in the church would be well to heed that word. The son refuses to come in and join the feast because he feels he's earned the feast for himself. Time and time again, he never got one. He claims he followed all the rules. Except Dr. Bailey points out that he didn't quite fulfill all of his roles as the eldest son in the family when the younger son's request was made. Bailey helps us understand that in this culture, it was the responsibility of the eldest son to step in and try to seek reconciliation when there was a disagreement between a parent and another child. Bailey writes this, Breaks in relationship are always healed through a third party among Middle Easterners. So the silence of the elder son in that moment means complete refusal to do what culturally he should have done. When we understand these nuances and see that the elder son is indeed lost, that he has just as much of a broken relationship with the father as the younger does, and yet we see that the elder son is completely unrepentant. He cannot or will not see what he is missing. 
And so the father again does something completely unexpected by going out to the son whose refusal to come in, who has argued in front of the gathered guests, is also a public act of humiliation. Now the younger son may have removed himself from the family by his actions. The older son has removed himself by his words. Notice he refers to his brother as this son of yours. And the father, seeking restoration, says, this brother of yours. What's missing in the theology of the Pharisees is what Dr. Bailey calls an unexpected, visible demonstration of love in humility. It looks on the surface as though the Pharisees are the obedient ones. They have followed the rules. They feel they've earned the right to be at the feast. They should be having dinner with Jesus. That's what they expect of a Messiah. But Jesus does not do what is expected. He does what is unexpected. Jesus holds up a shepherd and a woman as symbols of his father who will go to any length to search for the lost. He sits at table and breaks bread with tax collectors who are considered sinners and outcasts. Jesus eating with them signifies that he is accepting them in a personal relationship. They who were previously not included are now welcomed in. Those who were dead to the community are now alive again. They were lost and are now found. The shepherd and the woman, albeit unexpected heroes, they do what is expected in those stories. They search for what's lost. The father, who is the expected hero, does one unexpected thing after another, showing unmerited grace, unconditional love, and makes an unexpected visible demonstration of love in humility. He is a symbol of our heavenly father, demonstrating that there is nothing he will not do to find the lost and to restore relationships. Finding Nemo is perhaps my favorite movie for illustrating the commitment of a father to pursue his lost son. I mentioned this film a few weeks ago when talking about that great scene near the beginning when Nemo, who is a little clownfish, blatantly disobeyed his father, swam away from the safety of the reef, went way out into the deep water, and touched the boat when he was directly told not to do so. Well, what happens next is that Nemo gets caught by a scuba diver and taken away on a boat to Sydney, Australia, where he's put into a fish tank. And so the rest of the movie, the remainder of the movie, follows the relentless search by Marlon, Nemo's nervous and anxious father, to find his son, with the help of an extremely forgetful blue tangfish named Dory, who sadly suffers from short-term memory loss. Thanks to Dory's childlike innocence, they meet a whole host of creatures in the sea, that Marlin previously feared and would never associate with. We notice throughout the movie, his attitude begins to change. His posture shifts as many aid in the search of his son. <laughs> it's always great to be able to show that in front of a New England audience. Mine, mine, mine. Do we not hear that in those birds? Culture whispers God's story. When we hear 
in that in one of the birds remarking, now that's one dedicated father, if you ask me. Now what's missing is that Marlon is not even close to being a perfect father. He was fearful. He was overprotective. Those feelings came out of his own brokenness at the fact that his wife and all his other children except Nemo die at the beginning of the movie. Thank you, Pixar and Disney. <laughs> this theme of loss is strong in Disney and Pixar. The reality is that theme is strong in life. You and I experience loss. Our country and our world continue on almost a daily basis to experience loss. But friends, we have access to what is missing. We have one dedicated Heavenly Father, one who will not leave us as Simba begs his father not to leave. One who loves us with an unconditional love. One who continues to do the unexpected. We have a savior who demonstrated unmerited grace. He befriended sinners and tax collectors, healed the sick, welcomed the outcast, and eventually went to the cross on our behalf, dying so we might live, carrying the burden with even a sense of joy in his pain. He rose again, to conquer the eternal power of sin and evil. Now the good news is that there is nothing we have to do to earn this gift of life. There is no checklist that we have to fulfill. The bad news is, for those of you who like checklists, there's no checklist. <laughs> we simply are to surrender, surrender ourselves in humility to the God who created us, who loves us for who we are and who sees us for who we can be. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to follow Jesus' example by demonstrating unexpected, visible acts of love in humility as we serve wherever and whenever God calls us. Yes, perhaps this summer even in kids' town. <laughs> Hugging a baby, playing with a toddler, helping a preschooler listen to a story, but also as we open our doors to young people who are struggling to kind of get through this sea that is adolescence with all that is in it that they swim against and the currents of our culture, trying to figure out who they are and who is this God who we say knows them and loves them intimately. As we honor and care for our seniors with humble and thankful hearts for their years of investment in us, in our church, and in our community. And as we go out beyond these walls into our workplaces and our neighborhoods, to Boston, Philadelphia, and Kentucky, to the Dominican Republic, Haiti, and Guatemala, to Moldova, or even China. But there are moments there are moments when I look at our nation being torn apart by too many years of unaddressed injustices and oppression. When I see those who are bravely willing to put on a uniform and wear a badge, but then are dumped into the larger pool with those few who abuse that power. When acts of terror take innocent lives around the globe for no reason, and when I see drug use and alcohol use, suicide and bullying affecting 
our kids, in our schools, I cry out. I cry out, God, what is missing? What's missing are women and men willing to demonstrate unexpected, visible acts of love in humility. Friends, the Pharisees missed it. The elder son missed it. Let us not miss it. For we have one dedicated father who is our heavenly father and he is yearning for restoration, who will go to any height and any depth and cross any ocean to seek the lost and bring them home. So what can we do? What can you do? What can I do? Listen to God's call in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Let's hold God to that promise. Let us come together Wednesday night in prayer, in worship, and in lament. Now, I went to see Finding Dory this week. And one of the things we learn in this new film is that Dory, when she was young, had parents who loved her deeply and told her that when she got forgetful and didn't know what to do to just keep swimming. Friends, we can't just keep swimming. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't need us, but he's chosen us to partner with him in this effort. So let's not miss the party. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we give you thanks that you, Heavenly Father, are dedicated to us and dedicated to seek out the lost and bring them home. So dedicated that you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be the bridge between a sinful world and a holy God. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you took on that burden for the joy that was set before you. You endured its shame and its pain for us and you conquered the eternal consequence of sin and evil. Holy Spirit, we give you thanks that you are present now in your church, and we ask that indeed you would renew us, renew your holy fire in us, that we might be your hands and feet to the world, that we might share your grace and your love unexpectedly. And it is in your name we pray and all of God's children said, Amen.